0: Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Good morning. The scripture today comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters, and the, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of God to us.
1: Awesome, thanks, Sarah. Guys, how are we doing? Uh, Phil Masseri brought those announcements with strength today. Phil is a Renaissance man, he doesn't just lead worship. Phil, AKA the Italian Stallion, AKA Felineal, a man of many hats, a man of many talents. Uh, hey, it's good being home with you guys. If uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we dive into Isaiah chapter 11, I want to encourage you guys to find a Bible, flip to it. Before we go there, I just wanted to tell you guys uh, how grateful I was to God for you last week. I was really proud of you. That was a, that was a moment in the life of our church where we had more people participating in our week of prayer and fasting than I think we've ever had historically. I was just really proud of you guys, man. Like the, the temperature of our church, the places where we're seeing spiritual revival and renewal fills me with a lot of gratitude and joy and the desire to keep contending for more in 2024. And uh, I was just I was just proud of you. I love you. I love being one of your pastors and I love what God's doing in our church. Um, can we pray together? I'm gonna pray for you. You pray for me and we're gonna dive into Isaiah 11. Father, thank you so much for all of the evidences of grace all around us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your presence. And uh, as we continue to step through the season of Advent, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the coming of Jesus in new ways. God, would you tend the soil of our hearts, where our hearts are growing. Cold or rocky, we just pray that you would do the work that only you can do to make them tender, to make them soft. God, we pray that this Christmas season would not just be marked with sentimentality and uh, frivolous, frivolous celebration, but it would be just a season of renewed awe at the wonder of the incarnation that you stepped in to intervene in our history. And today, as we talk about a really powerful, really beautiful, really weighty text, we just ask that you would help us to see Jesus and his kingdom more clearly. And we pray that the increase of his government and of peace would be seen and felt in this room. pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So glad you guys are here. We're journeying through the season of Advent by spending time with Isaiah's Messianic prophecies. Advent is the seasonal life of the church where we posture our hearts to receive the first coming of Jesus. We stand with the Old Testament people of God, and we open our eyes to the darkness of the world, the darkness of our sin, so that we can receive the light of Jesus on Christmas morning. It's a really important season in the life of the church. It's also a season where we cultivate in our hearts longing and waiting for the return of Jesus. And I don't know of a better place to do both of those things, to both get ready for the first coming and to prepare our hearts for the second coming, uh, than the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, by the Spirit of God, prophesied the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that he would bring in the advent of Jesus. So take your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 11, and to make sense of Isaiah 11, to see just how bright and how beautiful it is, some of the most powerful words in all of the Old Testament, to see the brightness of Isaiah 11, we have to take just a couple of minutes to feel the heaviness and the darkness of chapter 10. What's happening in Isaiah chapter 10 is that God is speaking words of judgment to the king of Assyria and to the kingdom of Assyria because God has used Assyria to execute his judgments on Israel. But as he did so, Assyria also was puffed up with pride and arrogance, And what we're going to find in chapter 10 is this little concentrated dose of what's been happening throughout the entire course of human history, namely the pride and the violence of human kingdoms, the pride and the violence of human kingdoms. God is going to rebuke the arrogance of Assyria in 10 chapter one. Listen to what he says. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees or those who write sinful laws and the writers who keep on writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Okay, here's the thing you have to understand about a biblical anthropology. Human beings, though in the image of God, are sinners by nature and choice. And the default posture of a sinful heart is one of pride. It's one of pride. It's one in which we try to save ourselves and fend for ourselves. It's one in which, going back to the garden, human beings have a default posture to God where we want his stuff, but we don't want him, and we act as if the universe revolves around us. It's pride. It's pride. St. Augustine said that pride is the mother of all sins. It really is the default position of the human heart to act as if we are the king or the queen of our own little kingdom of self. And what the Bible tells us again and again and again is that when sinful human beings get together and they build society or culture, one of the fundamental markers of those cultures is pride. It's pride. That's what happened with the Tower of Babel as they tried to build a tower up to heaven. That's what happened in the Babylonian kingdom. That's what happened in the Assyrian kingdom. And in the midst of pride, what starts to happen is pride always leads to violence. Pride always leads to violence as arrogance puffs up and thinks that it has the right to decree whatever it wants to decree. Here's a snapshot into the pride of the king of Assyria. Look at chapter 10, verse 12 now. And when the Lord had finished his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he, the king of Assyria says, by the strength of my hand, I've done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding." I will remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there is none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Now, here's the thing that's crazy. If you study human history, if you study the Old Testament, if you just look back at even the last 500 years of human history in the world, what we find again and again and again is though not all kings and not all kingdoms, not all governments and regimes are equally wicked, like I would way rather live in the United States than under Taliban rule, But even though there are more and less wicked kingdoms, every time human beings get together to build culture and society, even though because of the image of God, there will be reflections of God's goodness and glory, there will be common grace that are a part of those societies, the fundamental marker in God's nostrils is always gonna be our pride, our pride and our arrogance. And in our pride and in our arrogance, violence always ensues. And so God is going to say something to the Assyrians. God is going to move in judgment against them. And just as if they were a forest of pride with really lofty trees that were arrogant and lifted up, God is going to reduce the Assyrian kingdom to be a bunch of stumps that he's going to cut down. Look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33. Behold, The Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. And the lofty will be brought low. Okay, here's the thing about this that's so important. If we're going to understand the coming of Jesus as a king and the establishment of his kingdom, we have to understand that again and again and again, human history has played out with pride and arrogance being opposed by the holiness of God and God having to reduce the arrogance of man again and again and again. And sadly, what the Prophecies of the Old Testament tell us is that like the arrogant kings of the earth the kings of Israel got co-opted by that way of being and God also had to cut down the branches and the trees of old covenant Israel. So in the midst of all of that darkness we're left with a couple of questions. Like is there ever going to be a future for humanity in which we're not opposed to God and God's not opposed to us? Is there ever going to be a time where justice actually is completed? Is there ever going to be a time where over the course of the earth, there's going to be true righteousness and true goodness? Or is the human, is the human condition so broken and so sinful that God's default posture is going to be one of judgment and removal of his presence and again and again and again, cutting down the trees of human pride? And the thing that's so crazy about this is that it's easy to think, well, you know, we wouldn't be like that. We're, we're not like that. We're not prideful. We're not bad. But what's wild is that we actually are. And if you and me had the authority of a king, we would do equally dirty stuff. <laughs> And so in the midst of all of that darkness, Isaiah chapter 11 is going to contrast the prideful kingdom of Assyria and the pride of natural Israel with a new kind of king and a new kind of kingdom, a new administration in the earth that God's not going to have to oppose, that God himself is actually going to establish as the antithesis of arrogance and violence. Look what he says in Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the name of King David's dad. So the picture is there's this cut down tree, which would be the kings of Israel, the line of David, but God's saying that there's going to be a shoot, a green, a green bit of life that's going to grow from the dead stump and a branch from its roots is going to bear fruit. There's tons of prophecies that God made in the Old Testament. He made promises to Adam and Eve that in the fullness of time, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He promised Moses that there would be a greater Moses who would deliver his people from sin. He promised Abraham that Abraham would have an offspring who would bring blessing to the nations. But the culmination promise of the entire Old Testament, the most fundamental promise, the one that has the most clarity and specificity, the one that's a, that carries together all of the story of God's promise to redeem is a promise that grabs all of those promise and promises and folds them into one. It's the promise God made to David that David would one day have an offspring who would be a king, and his kingdom would have no end. And the tragedy of David's lineage is that again and again and again, David's sons followed in the footsteps of evil. Solomon started out great and ended up apostate. David's other sons did injustice in the earth. And God, in his judgment, cut down those trees. He reduced them to stumps. But now God is saying that in the fullness of time, from the dead stump, from the line of David, there's going to be this shoot that's going to come, and he's going to be a tree that's going to bear fruit that turns into a forest that will be a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of rule. It will be against the grain of pride and of violence. I want to give you three things that he's going to say about Jesus, three prophecies about Jesus. He's going to point out, first of all, the constitution of the king, that the way of being, the motivation of this son of Jesse, the way that he's going to navigate rule is going to be fundamentally opposed to the kings of the earth. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. And he'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his waist. And faithfulness, the belt around his loins. Okay, if the king of Assyria clothed himself with arrogance and established his rule with violence and neglected justice, but actually judged based on the wrong premise that might makes right, God is saying in the fullness of time, there's going to be this Christ or anointed one, who through the power of the Holy Spirit is not going to simply occasionally delight in the glory of his father, but he's going to establish his rule in the earth driven by the fear of God and righteousness. If human kings and human kingdoms can try to sort of put together our laws in hopes that justice will be blind, but miss it again and again and again, what Isaiah is saying is that the new king is actually going to be able to penetrate to the depths of the human heart. He's not gonna judge based on the status quo or based on the faulty assumptions of human laws. He's actually gonna have a kind of wisdom, a kind of power that sees to the core of everything because he, he is going to be clothed in perfect righteousness. He's going to be able to rule in a different way because he actually understands the fabric of the universe as a place created by the living God that was designed to reflect his holiness. And he is going to bring, through the power of the Holy Spirit, judgments in the earth that actually will oppose evil and establish beauty. And when he speaks his word of judgment, the wicked are going to fall and those that are humbled are going to be lifted. Jesus, in the fullness of time, 700 years after this prophecy, walked into the temple, picked up the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah And he read these words, Luke chapter four, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty, those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like, I don't know where you're at today in your relationship with Jesus. I don't know if your affections for Jesus are cold or warm. I don't know if you want to believe, but don't believe. I don't know if you've sort of gone through years of deconstruction and you're trying to figure out if there's anything that Christianity has to offer you. But what Isaiah is telling you right now should make your ears open up. What he's saying is that Jesus actually clothes himself in the kind of righteousness that no king, that no law, have been able to get close to, Jesus is going to work in the earth in such a way that the goodness of God is gonna be fully put on display. The mercy of God, the wisdom of God, the patience of God, the holiness of God. The constitution of this king is radically different because he's not coming to be served. He first comes to serve. To lift up the poor, to establish righteousness, to oppose wickedness, to set to right the things that have been broken. Now, secondly, Isaiah is going to talk about the composition of the king's kingdom. He's going to talk about not only is the king against the grain of every other king that's ever lived, but the kind of kingdom that he's going to establish is against the grain. Instead of being a kingdom based on ethnicity or based on geography, instead of being like a geopolitical place of intrigue that's all about acquiring power and protecting power, this king is going to serve as a signal that's going to be a blessing and light to the nations. His kingdom is going to be composed of people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples or a beacon for the peoples of him shall inquire the nations and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, he's going to gather him. From Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel. He will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay, here's what he's saying. In the fullness of time, this king of righteousness is gonna have a kingdom that's gonna serve as a beacon light or like a lighthouse. And the goodness of his name and the goodness of his rule is gonna be so powerful and so beautiful that he's gonna draw people from the four corners of the earth to be a part of what he's doing. And that drawing is gonna serve as a second exodus, a work of rescue and redemption look at the end, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 16. Isaiah says, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, track with me on this. Uh, The work of the exodus is the most definitive moment of rescue in the Old Testament, For over 400 years, the children of Israel had been enslaved by Egypt. They had cried out to God day and night, and in their tears and in their weeping, they started to believe that God had forgotten them, but God moved to flex his might and rescue them. God brought judgment against the gods of Egypt, and he delivered his people literally by parting the Red Sea. The people were baptized in the Red Sea as they crossed from Egypt into freedom— And even though God established for them new geography, here's the thing that the story tells us, they all brought Egypt with them in their hearts. God did this work to get his children out of Egypt, but it wasn't a work that was sufficient to get Egypt out of his children. And we know that because as soon as they got into the wilderness, as soon as Moses disappeared for two days, what happens? the people of God started complaining. They built a God to worship. They turned back to idolatry. They started dreaming of going back to Egypt because at least there they had meat to eat. They were out of Egypt geographically, but Egypt was still embedded in their souls as a way of being that couldn't worship, trust, and love God. And what this is telling us is that the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of the anointed one is not going to be like the first Exodus that's primarily about geography. In fact, what God's going to do is going to be far more essential and fundamental and deep than a transfer of location. God's going to draw his people from all the nations, even if they never move. And what God's gonna do is bring his people not through the Red Sea, but he's gonna baptize them in the blood of Jesus to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. He's not just gonna get his people out of Egypt, he's gonna get Egypt out of his people and the composition of his kingdom is gonna be this crazy hodgepodge of every tribe and every nation and every tongue because as he is lifted up, he's going to be a beacon or a signal of the redemption and forgiveness of God. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at in John 12, 32. He said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The the composition of this king's kingdom is not that he's going to select the best and the brightest and do like a draft to recruit people he needs on his team. And it's not going to be this weird favoritism of one nation over a different nation. And it's not going to be one ethnicity. What this king's going to do is be lifted up in his humiliation on the cross. And as people hear the good news that Jesus bore their sins and burdens, he's going to draw people like a lighthouse to avoid being wrecked on the rocks of sin and judgment. And he's going to gather them to himself from all nations to be one people, one kingdom. Jesus is at work to draw the nations, to draw the nations. And this leads us to the last thing. Isaiah wants us to see the completeness of his kingdom this is not just a king with a different constitution, and this is not just a king that goes about gathering his people in a radically different way. This is a king that has power to do something that no king has ever had the power to do. He has the power to undo the curse, to redeem and rescue not just people's sinful hearts, but nature itself, to restore everything that broken that broke at the fall and to re Edenize the cosmos with the presence of God. Look at Isaiah 11, starting in verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatty calf together. These are animals that don't mix, right? Like you don't have predator and prey having tea together. And what Isaiah is saying is in the fullness of time, there's going to be a reconciliation even of nature where these beasts that are fundamentally opposed, devourers and the devoured are going to be reconciled in his kingdom and they're going to be able to eat together. And not only that, but a little child will lead them. That's the restoration of the dominion that Adam and Eve's daughters were created to have, to rule under the authority of God. A little child is taking leadership in creation. The cow and the bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. The wean child will put his hand on the adder's den. Now, that's not advocating for us going back to eighty style parenting. Uh, if you were a child of the eighties like me, our our parents didn't care what we did. They didn't care where we went. No, like God is saying something different. This is not negligent parenting. This is God saying that the reign of Messiah is gonna do a work in creation where even those things that human beings dread and rightfully so are gonna be defanged and restored. And there's gonna be, there's gonna be peace that's gonna vibrate in the very nature of all things. How has this happened? Look at verse nine and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The best thing about the culmination of this King's kingdom, the fullness of it, the completion of it is not just that he's going to establish peace, but that peace is going to be a marker of the very presence of the living God, the knowledge of God covering the earth like the waters covered the sea. What human beings need more than anything else is to know, love, and enjoy God as our highest good. And what human beings can't have on our own terms is the presence of God because we're so sinful. And what Isaiah is prophesying is that in the fullness of time, this shoot from Jesse, who's also Jesse's root, this offspring of David, who's also David's creator and source, not just another king, but God in the flesh— is going to do a work to restore creation so fully and so completely that not only will peace reign, but the very presence of God is going to fill all things so that people can see him and enjoy him so that we will, in the words of the book of Revelation, we won't even need the sun to bring light. This is a powerful prophecy of what Jesus came to do. Jesus is not just at work to restore spiritual things, although that would be enough, right? But he's not just at work to restore spiritual things. What Jesus came to do is to restore all things, all things. And the end for which God is systematically and patiently orchestrating history is not like a disembodied future that's going to be like a weird episode of the Simpsons when they talk about heaven and we're just disembodied beings playing harps up in the clouds. This king is going to bring a kingdom that when it culminates in its fullness is actually going to create a new heavens and a new earth that's going to be physical and spiritual as it was originally meant to be and beautiful and powerful and redeemed and restored. Now, as we close today, What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, there's so many different places that we could camp out and talk about application, but every time God talks to us about the future, he's also talking to us about the present. Every time God gives us a glimpse of what's coming, he's trying to bolster our resolve in the midst of darkness and suffering to be the kind of people that can wait and watch in hope, to not throw off restraint, to not give up. It's almost as if It's almost as if you were were in the midst of a desert, dying of thirst, but you knew that what was coming for you is an oasis, and it's guaranteed and sure, it would steady you. It would give you resolve to go one more day, to keep pressing. When God gives us a glimpse of what's coming, he's also informing what is. And the whole point of the season of Advent, which in some ways is the most important part of the entire church calendar, because All of the church, all of the church is embodied in the nowness and not yetness of God's kingdom. The nowness refers to what Jesus established at his first coming. That he has been lifted up. He has paid the penalty for sin. That sin, Satan, and death have been defeated through the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus is being lifted up to draw people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That he is at the right hand of his father, reigning and ruling. That his name is above every name that can be named. That Jesus is establishing his rule, like Kenser talked about in Isaiah 9, of the increase in his gov- of his government and of peace will be no end. That's happening in his church that's an outpost of his kingdom. And we should be expecting the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And even though we're waiting for the day where nature itself is restored, where death dies, where the new heavens and the new earth are created, even though that day isn't yet and predators still eat prey, the peace of Jesus is to reign in his church as a picture of what's coming as men and women learn to live under the reign and rule of Christ in love. As the people of God are people of reconciliation that extend grace and forgiveness and costly sacrificial love to one another, we're pointing ahead to the day where even lions and lambs will be able to lay down together. As husbands learn to repent of sin and honor and treasure and treat their wives with respect and dignity, that's a foretaste, that's a picture of the kind of restoration that's going to happen at like a cellular level in the midst of all things where all things are going to be redone and renewed to perfectly reflect the goodness and wisdom of God. The church Now is to be an outpost of the kingdom, extending the love of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, and the church is called to just keep lifting him up again and again and again that people could be drawn to him. And we also stand in the not yet. The bear doesn't yet grace. War is around us. The kingdoms of man are still marked with violence and oppression. Cancer still exists. Violence still exists. Evil still exists. Sex trafficking still exists. And in the midst of all that darkness and all that ugliness, as we hear creation groaning, the people of God are called to stand in the tension of the nowness of Jesus' reign and the not yetness of its fullness, which is gonna come in his return and to be people of salt and light who have hope in the midst of darkness, who wait and watch and pray. Second Peter tells us that the people of God, as they put on holiness and prayerfulness, not only wait and watch for the day of the Lord, but they hasten its coming. Like, from the time that Isaiah spoke these words to Israel to the first coming of Jesus, 700 years passed. 700 years And we don't know how long it'll be before Jesus returns to make all things new. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back in 10,000 years. We don't know. Don't believe anybody that tells you they do. But what we do know is that even though God didn't give us a when, he did give us a who. He didn't give us a date, but he disclosed to us the king and we can trust him and we can follow him and we can build our lives on the foundation of his rule. Can you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so so much for not leaving us to just constantly be in this like cycle of pride and judgment and pride and judgment and pride and judgment. We thank you for sending Jesus to be the prince of peace. We thank you for sending Jesus a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. We thank you that the shoot of Jesse, the son of David, is also the root of Jesse, the creator of David. And I pray today in in all kinds of places in the room that the nowness of Jesus' reign would be increased in our awareness. And I pray that the not yetness of the fullness of that rain that's not yet here would lead us to prayer and to waiting and trust and courage in the midst of the world. And we pray as we come to this meal that you would nourish us and feed us. And uh, Lord, as a, as a pastor in this church, like the thing I want more than anything for these people is for you to protect them and preserve them and get them home. Like, get them home. Jesus, where you are is their homeland. So deliver them from getting stuck and sidetracked and trying to make this world their permanent destination. Please get each and every one of us home.